Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the water of, of the stream, How long shall it be till these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his hand, his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the end of the time. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of God. Yeah. Hello, live stream. Last time I spoke, I was on the live stream out the back there, and Gav Mork has transformed my life because on that day my computer failed, and he said, I never preach from anything other than a hard copy script. And look what's happened. My device is not here. You've had a powerful impact on me, Gav. All right, so... Um, I want to begin today by talking to you about Bunnings, which is probably not where you thought I was going to start today, but don't worry, you'll catch on. Um, Bunnings is a big place with lots of useful stuff in it. And when it comes to men in this world, there are at least two different types of men who approach Bunnings and how they approach Bunnings. So the first group of people, we'll call them real men, um, walk into Bunnings and seem to immediately know where everything is and what everything does. And so it doesn't matter if it's fixing your dunny or putting in some guttering or buying concrete, they're all over it. And then there's me. I walk into Bunnings and I know I should know where everything is and I know I should know what that rubber thing or steel thing does but most of the time I walk around Bunnings like a lost toddler crying out for mummy because I haven't got the foggiest idea of where I am and what I'm doing. 
There's only one place worse than Bunnings for me, which is Spotlight. That is a, a genuine, genuine catastrophic fail. The only time I'm ever comfortable in Bunnings is when I know the problem that I have. So then I can walk in and ask and say, how do I attach my toilet seat to the toilet? Because six months ago, I didn't know how to do that, and now I do. And it's because my toilet seat literally broke. Not mid-ablution, I want you to know, but it did break. And this is the only way I can make head or tail of anything at Bunnings. I have to be able to walk in and go, there's a problem that needs an answer, and then I can walk in and say to a staff member, here's my problem, or here's the thing that's broken. I need a new one. Can you take me to it? Preferably holding my hand in this terrifying place. Now, please don't hear me wrong. I know that women use Bunnings just as much as men. It's just I'm trying to explain my experience as a man with fellow men. Because I know Bunnings is filled with amazing solutions, but none of it makes sense to me until there's a problem that needs solving. Now, in the same way, the Bible is a massive book, and it's filled with tons of insights. But what's interesting about those insights is they don't all come to us at once even in terms of the way the Bible unfolds its storyline. It actually takes the whole of the Bible to get to know God and his ways. And so there's more that you know about God in the middle of the story than you do at the start, and there's more that you know about God by the end of the story than you know in the middle, because God progressively reveals things to his people. It's not like Israel or the apostles get it all downloaded in one hit. And to me, this is the kindness of God towards his people, that he slowly unfolds what we need to know over time, and, and some things he says at just the right time to his people. And so like me in the hardware store, sometimes you can't appreciate the answer until you're experiencing the problem. And so it might come as a surprise to you to realize that the idea of the afterlife does not appear throughout much of the Old Testament. For a lot of the Old Testament, the focus is on living life in the present. And God's promises are about things that are right in front of them. The promised land is the land of Israel right in front of them. And indeed, in a few places, the people of Israel express the idea that if they die, they fear it might be the end of it all. So in Psalm 6, verses 4 to 5, it says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now that is an honest thought right there. All that God had revealed up until this point in time was mostly about the now. Mostly about how to praise him in the now. Mostly about how to obey him in the now. How to enjoy him in the now. And it's clear that many Israelites didn't actually have a clear sense of what was going to happen after they died. They don't reject that something could happen. They're not saying God can't do something in that space. They know God is powerful. They know God is just. They know he could do whatever he wants. But the promises of afterlife are pretty light on at this point in the Old Testament. They're pretty vague. And that's because God hasn't really spoken specifically about it just yet. They have faith, but they don't yet have a promise from God because God progressively reveals things to his people. We don't get it all downloaded in just one hit. But towards the end of the Old Testament, you start to get these promises appear. 
you get these promises of an afterlife. So one of the earliest comes in Isaiah 26, verse 19, where it says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Now, what provokes a promise like this, what emerges slowly, sorry, I should have asked that as a question. Now, what provokes a promise like this? What emerges slowly in that second half of the Old Testament is that death is not our intended end, that we are made with eternity in our hearts. We are meant to know and enjoy God forever. And death comes to be pictured increasingly as an enemy to be defeated, a power that holds us in slavery. And God comes to liberate us from death and indeed to destroy death altogether. Now, you might find this strange that I'm talking like this because you might be saying, well, if you're roughly familiar with the Bible, doesn't death become a problem like in chapter 3 of the Bible in the Garden of Eden when they eat the fruit and it says you will surely die, that kind of a thing? But I think that the significance of that statement in Genesis feels powerful to us in a way that it didn't always feel to the Israelites in the same way. They needed further moments to really understand, no, 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 we were actually made for forever. And so this problem of death seems to have simmered away, but then it really starts to fire up in the second half of the Old Testament. And sometimes you have to feel a problem before you really cry out for an answer. There are many things I've known about for years. For example, a really prominent theme in the scriptures is the problem of abusive leaders. That is, people who are false shepherds, who, who ruin the lives of God's people because they lead them poorly. And I've known about those texts for years. And yet they've come home with a force for me in the last few years because I've had friends really suffer at the hands of abusive leaders. And all of a sudden, those texts have leapt off the page and it's become something incredibly important to me. Well, Israel might have had vague hopes for an afterlife, but something happens to make them want to know the specifics about life beyond the grave. And the thing that really sparks resurrection into gear for them is the experience of unjust death. Because the problem with death is that, without trying to state the complete bleeding obvious, it robs you of fullness of life you've ever had to sit with someone who's dying, that's what it feels like. You, you feel the fullness of their life draining away. And then there are those particular deaths, those ones where people are taken from us suddenly. Someone who was doing good, someone who was serving God, someone who was loving others, someone who was blessing their family. And that's where the absurdity of death really intrudes. It just comes in so clearly. There was more for them to do. They were made forever. And it's just so acute that you feel the sense of a wasted life. Well, Israel, for want of a better term in the second half of the Old Testament, Israel is regularly experiencing the sting of unjust death. So if you think about the story of Israel, the peak of it is reached in the Davidic and the Solomonic monarchies, right? In the in the period of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. And then after that period, it's a slow but steady and often catastrophic decline. And what happens is that 
because of Israel's sin, they start to experience invasion from foreign powers. And it's never only the wicked that suffer. The righteous suffer as well. There's always a remnant of people who are faithful, who refuse to compromise, but that faithfulness does not preserve them from suffering. And so in that second half of the Old Testament, you see the good guys die for being good. You've seen that in Daniel, in the last few chapters of Daniel as you've been going through it. In chapter 7, there is a beast who makes war on the saints, and it says that beast prevails for a time. In chapter 11, it talks about a time that was still future to Daniel when the king of the north, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Throughout Scripture, the righteous suffer great problem. And I'm not here referring to the general suffering of being human, although that's true too. We all get sick. We can all get heart disease. We can all get COVID. But the problem of righteous suffering is actually far more challenging because sometimes you suffer because you are righteous, because you refuse to compromise. All throughout Scripture, if you worship God, preach the gospel, love the poor, cry out against abuses of power, practice sexual faithfulness, then sometimes those people will suffer for that. Think Moses, David, Elijah, Peter, Paul, John, Jesus. The great challenge of a godly life is that so many good and godly lives suffer. They're not doing it wrong. They're not making errors. As God brings his redeeming love into the world, the shape of redeeming love is always sacrifice. We give our lives away to proclaim God's honor. We give our lives away to testify to his reign. We give our lives away to love others. We give our lives away, not in a crazy, self-martyring way, but in a sense of, I will sacrifice for you. And that's devastating, friends, if there is no resurrection. I have to be honest, sacrificial living can easily feel absurd and pointless. And Paul is candid about this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, verses 30 and following, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There is an illogicality to living sacrificially. Yes, it might be noble, but it ultimately seems pointless. And it's that sense of pointlessness in the face of overwhelming suffering that enables God to speak at just the right time the hope of resurrection to his people facing death in Daniel. Daniel 12 comes after Daniel 11, which is a stunning insight on my part. But chapter 11 has been all about Israel being caught between foreign kings and rulers and being a political football being tossed back and forth. 
And chapter 12, I need you for a moment to ignore the chapter markers at this point because the chapter markers were added later. They were actually added a thousand plus years later and not always by a person who actually knew what they were doing because chapter 12 is probably the end of chapter 11 in the sense of the first three or four verses of chapter 12 are probably the end of chapter 11 because they're trying to conclude and say what's going on in chapter 11 has its resolution here. And that brings us to an announcement after being told all that stuff about the foreign kings and rulers. It brings us to this announcement in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, the details of this text are actually quite sparse. There's not a lot of detail here, but there's enough. Enough detail to get the point. And I like to say this often to people reading apocalyptic literature. Enough detail to get the point, but not enough detail to speculate. Because the archangel Michael, who has already appeared in chapter 10 of Daniel, is a chief angel responsible for the protection and the defense of God's people. That's all you need to know. You don't need to do a deep dive and get your Michael on, okay? Just know that God does not abandon his people and that they shall, in the words of verse 1, they shall be delivered. But note, the deliverance promised is not simply that the living will be delivered. This is not a rerun of Daniel in the lion's den and, and Shadrach and his crew coming out of that furnace. No, it's those who sleep in the dust of the earth. It's those who in this present age know what it is to experience loss or shame or humiliation, those whose light has been dimmed. The language is that they will be vindicated. It says in here that they will shine bright because light is often a metric of status, of glory, of your position in Scripture. And it's an image that's meant to contrast with their previous humiliation. Within their present frame, within the view of the present, their lives look like the failure, like something entirely inconsequential. But in the light of eternity everything changes about our evaluation of who these people are. And that's it. That's the point of the text, that you can live differently in the present if you know how the story ends. It is the fitting finale to the story of the book of Daniel because from chapter 1 onwards, living life in Babylon requires a perspective that can go beyond the present moment. If the present is all you have, some decisions don't make sense. Some actions will look absurd. Some practices will look ridiculous. Because what is going to nourish your courage? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, they will not serve your gods and worship the golden image that you have set up, why does that decision really make sense? It makes sense if the resurrection is true. And I want my life to look different because the resurrection is true. I want people to have a look at my life and actually sit there and go, 
You obviously need this story to end in a certain way, that you would give your life away like this. Because we live in a presentist culture. I don't even know if that's a word, but I'm going to take it. We want to make sure we're living fully right now. There's so much that's good about that. The whole discipline of mindfulness is all about that, trying to help us live into the moment. So instead of only thinking about your past or obsessing about the future, you need to live fully in the moment. And that's, that's a good thought. But if all you ever think about is the present, then other kinds of deformities emerge. You become consumed by the fear of missing out. And part of what underlies FOMO is the belief that you only live once. And because when people lose their hope in a future life, it brings panic in the present. You have to make your heaven now because this is your one shot. You've got to grip tight everything now because this is your only chance. And so that's why people out of my way build McMansions, because you've got to build heaven now. I have to travel to every continent, otherwise I miss out. I have to eat every exotic food, no matter what the cost. I, this is the only time I'll ever get to enjoy creation. When you only have one temporary life to live, it becomes very, very hard to give that life away. Let us eat and drink. Tomorrow we die. When you look at the sacrificial acts of Christians throughout the ages, part of what drives them to be so sacrificial is the knowledge that they can give their lives away because God will raise them up on the last day. Not again in a silly, manic, crazy sense of self-martyrdom, but in a sense of I can live sacrificially. The American sociologist Rodney Stark has repeatedly pointed out that the witness of Christians in the early periods of the church was hugely supported when plague broke out in cities, which I know that we're all familiar with plague these days. But when plagues broke out in cities and when populations fled for fear of contagion, Christians were known for staying behind to tend to the sick, thereby putting themselves at risk. Now, in our day and age, that feels stupid because we're like, social distancing, guys, come on. That's not really what that's about. This is not about containing contagion. This was about saying, I can give away my security in order that the abandoned would know care and love. That's why Christians were so often the leaders in the development of hospitals. Because before modern medicine, hospitals weren't places that you got better. They were places you went to die. And Christians would actually give of themselves and go, I'm going to take the risk of being sick in order that someone would not feel abandoned. If the resurrection is true, then what you sacrifice in the present is worth it in God's future. Resurrection hope means you can relax your tight-fisted grip on the present and enables you to fully give yourself to loving and serving people right now. Because if you're going to preach the gospel, the sacrifices required do not fully make sense in the present. There are things you might have to deny yourself. There might be suffering you could avoid if you stopped preaching it and living it. And that suffering will look absurd if the present is all you've got, if that's your only frame of reference. But if resurrection is how the story ends, you can give your life away for the gospel.
if you're going to fight injustice, if you're going to keep worshipping, if you're going to not have to grip so hard to present power and sacrifice your character on the altar of holding power, that doesn't make sense unless there's a resurrection where there's a reversal. This is what stuns me about American Christianity with Trump. Not that they might support a policy here or here or here, but they're saying, if this doesn't work out now in the present, it's all over. And I'm going, what does the resurrection do in that scenario? What does the new creation do in that scenario? I will not sacrifice my character in order to hold on to present power. I will not sacrifice the gospel in order to hold on to present power. Because if the ending of the story is resurrection, I can give my life away in service to others. The joy of resurrection means I can hold my possessions lightly. It means I can give all of me to serve others because God holds my future in his hands. That doesn't mean, by the way, I can't enjoy the present. It just means I don't have to obsessively protect my present. Resurrection undercuts the fear of missing out. Resurrection can enable full-hearted service, and that's what it does for the people of God and Daniel. It enables them to be able to say, I can draw the appropriate lines in Babylon, and I do not have to fear what I'm going to give up. Because every year I face decisions about my life where God challenges me on whether I want to grip my present tighter or whether I can generously live in the present because I know that the future is good. Now to close up, some of you might be wondering what I'm going to do with Daniel 12 verses 4 and onwards because they're somewhat of a strange finish. This is our regular experience of apocalyptic literature, isn't it? There's a bit you understand and then there's a whole lot you don't. And all of a sudden there's heavenly beings and people in rivers and people saying seals and 1290 days and 1335 days and all this kind of stuff. What is the big point of this finish to the book? Which it would kind of work if it finished at verse 3. But he keeps going. In verse 4, Daniel is told to seal up his book until the time of the end. And then in verses 5 to 7, he sees two heavenly figures and he asks, well, how long is it going to take for all this stuff in the visions? In other words, when is the time of the end? And then he gets two different answers that don't quite match up, but seem to refer to a time in Israel's history when the sacrifices will be meddled with. He's really kind of asking, what's going on, God? I need to know more detail." But what's interesting is, despite all of the little tidbits of detail we get, which is what people go nuts about, really what's being communicated is, begins to be said in verse 9, where it says, essentially, go away. Go your own way, Daniel. These words are sealed and shut up. And the important thing is in the final verse, verse 13. It says, but go your way till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. I like what Chris Wright says about this text. He says this is the God version of keep calm and carry on. Which is that he's trying to say to Daniel, 
There's a lot going on here. The details are worked out, but your job is to go your way and it'll work out. Because God doesn't give you visions of the end so that you would speculate. He gives you visions of the end so that you would live well in the present. So you can go and live well in the present because you know that God has your back in the future. Now he says to Daniel that the prophecy is sealed up because, of course, this is written before the time of Jesus and before the time of everything being unveiled through God's last word in Jesus. But what's interesting is, in many respects, we live in unsealed times. People who want to say that the book of Revelation is some sort of hidden, coded message that we've only understood now in the 21st century don't read that book for themselves because it actually says in the book of Revelation, do not seal up the words of this book because Jesus has come. Therefore, the last word from God has been given. We live in the unsealed times. We know way more than Daniel. We know resurrection is even more true and assured because God has begun the resurrection of the dead through his son. And therefore, we, more even than Israel in Babylon, know how to live our lives in this temporary moment because we have the example of Jesus And we have the promise of the resurrection writ large through his own resurrection from the dead. And so living the way of Jesus in the present always makes sense because the resurrection of Jesus guarantees our future. Which is why I'd like to finish on these words from Chris Wright in his commentary on Daniel where he says, For all of us then, if we know the God of Daniel as our God, Through faith in his Son, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise of God's word comes, you will will rest, you will rise, you will receive. With such a word ringing in our ears, we can indeed, like Daniel, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that You are kind enough to give us enough information at the right time and that we feel things at different moments in our life and even as we see the biblical storyline unfold, we feel things come home to us with greater force, greater vigor and we're we're aware of the ways in which our lives sometimes don't make sense in the present. We sometimes wonder, is it worth it to live like this, to experience this suffering in order to do your will, to experience this kind of pain sometimes and to wonder, what am I giving up in service to you? Heavenly Father, we thank you that at the right time you give us promises of resurrection and not only promises but actually the act of your Son to inaugurate resurrection, to begin it for us, that we might know that you are bringing a promise that is greater than any promise that is in this present, a greater inheritance, and that we are those who look for a city that is better than this one. And so help us to live that way and to witness to that in this present moment, that we might honor you, that we might serve and love others, and that we might ultimately rejoice together with all of God's people in the end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.